Welcome to this week in the ACC. This is the podcast for allsportsdiscussion.com. I'm your moderator. This is Matthew. You can follow me on Twitter at, at HokieSmash underscore ASD. And joining me as always, whose Twitter account is at Talking ACC Sports, and his name is Jeffrey Fan. I'm so happy to be back. And this is what we consider to be really our opening week podcast, right? I mean, we're getting a huge preview of the ACC. We're also getting a huge a, a, a huge preview of week one. And we have a very special guest on the podcast tonight. Joining us this week is National College Football blogger Matt Zemek, who is also a member of our team at allsportsdiscussion.com. And he's the editor of of Trojans Wire, which is the Gannett Company USA Today, USC, that's the University of Southern California athletics website. And he'll cover men's basketball, he'll cover college football, he'll cover anything that's Trojans over there. And he's been a college football writer since 2001. He's been just at several places, and we're going to ask him about his background further further when we get to that. But we we are certainly welcoming here welcoming here him here tonight. Uh, I want to make sure that I'm that I talk about this. Our podcast is sponsored by Main Street Pharmacy in Blacksburg, Virginia. This their address is 301 South Main Street, Suite 107. Blacksburg, Virginia, 24060. Again, it's Main Street Pharmacy in Blacksburg. The proprietor is Jeremy Counts, Dr. Jeremy Counts, and he just does a, he just does, does a great job. And we're really happy that he's sponsoring our podcast and our website this year. Matt, welcome back, man. I mean, we're so happy to have you on the All Sports Discussion ACC podcast. You have a lot. I mean, I'm serious when I say this. You have a long and storied college football writing career. You've just been all over the place in the blogosphere. Tell us about yourself, where you went to school, you know, where you've been, where you've been in the college football blogosphere, because you were with a really good stable of writers at collegefootballnews.com at one point in time, and just an outstanding group there. And then you went to several places after that, and then where you're at now. But we're happy you have we're happy to have you back, Matt. So the floor is yours here. Thank you so much for coming on with us. The first thing I think of when I join your late August show, right before the college football season, I think of the Masters piano theme, and I just feel like Jim Nance saying, "Hello, friends," because this is a tradition unlike any other. Uh, when I come on in late August, it, just, it feels like home. Thanks for welcoming welcoming me back into your home. Uh, by the way, one note about USC: I know that Jeff will very much identify with the notion that USC, the USC Trojans, are the real USC. We wouldn't want to say that about the University of South Carolina. So, uh, but anyway, uh, yeah. So I spent I spent 13 years at College Football News. Uh, Pete Butak, uh, you know, the editor-in-chief, he's still there at CFN right now. Uh, Rich Sermonello, an excellent writer. And another uh, guy who's still involved in sports media, Kevin Caduck, K-A-D-U-K. He was on the, the team at College Football News in 2001 when I broke in. Uh, and, but he, he, he does other media jobs. But, you know, yeah, it was a really talented group, very special times. Uh, I my point of pride for my days at College Football News was that uh, I started what was called the instant analysis uh, style of game story. Well, circa 2004, 2005, I I distinctly remember you know applying the instant analysis label to uh, a Texas Ohio State game when Vince Young won that game late in Columbus against one of uh, Jim Tressel's uh, solid Ohio State teams. So, you know, we, we, we the, the three of us, Pete, Rick, Kevin left in like 2002 or 2003, but I, uh, you know, was there for 13 years. And, you know, when I, by, by the time I left, you know, I had worked with a lot of great people at College of Law News. One of them is Barrett Salee. Uh, you know, Barrett writes uh, for uh, CBS, does a great job. He handles not just writing, but 
Also, yeah, he does a lot of TV and radio spots. He's one of Paul Feinbaum's uh, regular correspondents on the show. So he's certainly hit it big. It's always great to see a college football news alumnus really make it in the industry. Um, have some friends from that. Terry Johnson, who I just had on my own podcast, he was a college football news colleague. I then took him uh, and Bart Doan, and we, we the three of us uh, did the uh, the student section, which was at BlogUN, which became Comeback Media, uh, and, and we, we did that in 2014 and 2015. Had some good times there, and but then uh, you know that that venture ended sooner than we would have hoped. And then in 2016, I joined a place called FanRag Sports uh, with, with another great team. That's how I met uh, a sports writer named Wendell Barnhouse, who had been writing, uh, covering, you know, national college football and basketball, but he also covered the Dallas Cowboys. He, he, was in, he spent multiple decades in the Dallas-Fort Worth uh, newspaper scene. So I befriended him there. I befriended Wendell there. At FanRag Sports, made some other real connections. Uh, you know, John Rothstein briefly wrote for FanRag while FanRag and FanRag was around for like two years. In the time that FanRag existed, uh, John Rothstein came to the FanRag headquarters here in Phoenix, Arizona, where I am. So I got to shake his hand, got to say, you know, we sleep in May. It's only August. Uh, you know, we had a lot of laughs. So. Um, Lots of good times. You know, I'm not, I'm not famous, and, you know, that, that really doesn't matter so much. I'd kind of like to make a little bit more money, truth be told, but, but I love what I do, and not many people get to say that. A lot of people are, have jobs that they don't like, so I consider myself very blessed there. And the other big thing, Matt and Jeff, is that uh, in the pandemic, being able to work from home in the sports content business, writing, editing, you know, having that kind of a job so that I can be with my mom, take care of her. She's going to be, uh, Mama Zemek is going to be 80 next year. Uh, so, you know, the, this uh, stay-at-home job has been very good for me. So there are a lot of blessings, and I still love what I do. And uh, looking forward to a 21st year of writing about college football. It's, it's, it's special. I don't take it for granted. Really looking forward to covering the season. And, of course, this is always, one of my highlights of the year coming on the All Sports Discussion Podcast uh, on the final Sunday of August to look at the ACC season. We really appreciate you coming on, and I'm, I'm glad you were. I'm glad you were talking about your your mom your mom today because I, you know, I'm one of those people who lives. I I I had this thread on my on my timeline today where I, you know, mentioned, I don't really talk about personal issues too much. And, you know, seeing your parents when they're alive, I think is, is so important that you need to see them as often as you can. I probably could save this for the open mic microphone, which I do. I mean, I live far away from my parents and I think I'll probably, I'll probably save that for the open microphone tonight and get, make sure I give a positive message here for people. Uh, so let's get, let's, let's get right to football. Uh, Here's my homework question, Matt. How important of a year is it for Virginia Tech and Justin Fuente? Year number six here for Justin Fuente. The floor is yours, Matt. Well, I, you know, I think as as we look at you know Nebraska and Scott Frost and that dumpster fire, uh, I'm sure a lot of Virginia Tech fans who saw that game said. Gosh, those guys at Nebraska, they can't put up with another year of this crap. And I and I really think that at Virginia Tech it's basically the same thing. Like this this merry go round needs to stop. Like we need to get back to nine, ten wins. We need to get back to having a, a really solid passing game. I mean, you know, I remember that the one of the first games Justin Fuente coached at Virginia Tech, he absolutely undressed. Dana Holgerson and West Virginia. I mean, he ran circles around Holgo. Uh, you saw his X and O prowess. You saw the passing game come alive. Virginia Tech, you know, did so well at the very beginning of the Fuente era. And we all thought, or at least most of us thought, yeah, this is going to work out. Yeah, this is going to come together. And since then, what has happened? It's just crazy. Uh, and, you know, we saw Fuente. You know, he developed 
Andy Dalton at TCU. He, he helped Gary Patterson develop TCU into one of the better offensive teams. You know, Gary Patterson is a defensive mastermind. When TCU has a great offense, that program rocks. That program makes the New Year's Six, formerly BCS, uh, bowl game. So Fuente was part of that. Then he did a really good job at Memphis. And it just seemed as though he was going to keep ascending the ladder and he was going to be a worthy successor to Frank Beamer. And then it's just all disintegrated. So, you know, I, I really don't think that the Hokies can or should put up with this any longer. That he needs to deliver the goods this season. I think he needs to win nine games uh, to feel safe. Uh, you know, I think eight and four is kind of the Mendoza line. And, and if he's seven and five, he's gone. He's toast. Uh, he really needs to raise the bar. He really needs to show, you know, conclusively demonstrate improvement. And, you know, kind of, sort of, so-so, you know, eight and four, you, can, you, can, you can't really spin eight and four as being especially strong unless you're, you know, uh, at a lower-tier program, like for, for Duke, for Georgia Tech, uh, for, uh, for uh, Syracuse. You know, 8-4 and four is really impressive. But Virginia Tech, nah, I don't think so. I think you have to get, you know, nine wins should be your floor if you're Virginia Tech football. So that, to me, that is my sense of what Fuente has to do. 8-4 uh, and four is kind of going to be a 50-50 thing. And seven and five, I think he's close, and and, and uh, Whit Babcock needs to move on, uh, needs to needs to get a fresh start. So that's my sense of the situation in Blacksburg. You know, and I think that's a good response, Matt. I mean, you know, one of the interesting things for me, because and, and you brought up a good point of him being a good QB developer. Justin Fuente has never had the same starter in Blacksburg for more than more than I would say a season and a half. Would that is that shocking to you? Well, I mean, there has been a lot of turnover, and uh, I, you know, I'm forgetting the name, but one of the one of the guys, uh, it was Evans, right? He he uh, went for the NFL early, and everyone expected him to be back. And if he right. had returned from that extra year of school, you know, that might have been one of the most damaging things to happen to Fuente, and by extension, Virginia Tech. Uh, you know, but so, but I mean, yeah, he, he, he has not had stability, that's for sure. But, you know, uh, Hendon Hooker, you know, that he regressed last year, and I don't think people were anticipating that, and I don't think Fuente uh, did a particularly good job because they saw a glimpse of his potential in 2019, and, and a lot of people thought, okay, he's finding it. Fuente is getting back his fastball, getting back his mojo. This thing can round back into form. And it didn't happen. It's just been a, a series of those kinds of exasperating moments where you think, aha, this is where Virginia Tech gets it back. And then it doesn't. It's just, it's just the fan base has to be completely emotionally exhausted at this point. I, I, I am. <laughs> I am. <laughs> Jeff, you're up. <laughs> you're up, buddy. All right. Thanks, Matthew. Uh, Matt, give us your Thoughts on the momentum brewing at, at a couple of ACC football schools on Tobacco Road, uh, North Carolina, and NC State. Uh, I think there's an opportunity for, for both of these schools to have top 25 seasons. Definitely in the case of North Carolina, that's possible. Absolutely. And, and count me as someone who, you know, this year I'm high on NC State. Now, last year I thought, whoa, Dave Dorn's in huge trouble. Uh, he's really on the ropes. He's probably not going to have a good season. And, you know, uh, Tim Beck, think about Tim Beck, uh, Doran's offensive coordinator, is that, you know, at Texas, he and Tom Herman failed to get that program off the ground. Like, like Tim Beck failed to do at Texas what he was supposed to do, did not deliver elite results. And, you know, he used to work at Ohio State. Ohio State fans do not hold Tim Beck in high regard. So I was thinking, okay, Tim Beck, that's well, this season's not going to work out in, in the year 2020 uh, in Raleigh, but sure enough, it did. And Devin Leary really emerged at quarterback, and of course, he was injured. NC State could have been even better than it was. And I mean, NC State overachieved last year, but the Wolfpack could have been even better if Leary hadn't gone down. 
so with that in mind, it just seems as though Leary has the magic touch, that he has a, an intuitive, instinctive way uh, to play. He has, a, he has a natural feel for the game that you just can't teach. And that's going to, I think, make the Wolfpack really dangerous. Uh, they're my choice to be the second-place team in the Atlantic behind Clemson. So I'm definitely sold on the Wolfpack being a, 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 you know, a threat to make a New Year's Six game uh, and certainly to get like a January 1 game if they don't get a New Year's Six game. Uh, and then North Carolina, well, you know, th- this needs to be the year, right? Uh, you know, in last year, the fact that Notre Dame joined the ACC for one year, you know, that really blew up both North Carolina's and Miami's plans because they were both favored to win the Coastal as they are this year. But last year, they were both going to contend for the right to play Clemson, but then Notre Dame butted in and the pandemic complications, you know, threw a monkey wrench into UNC's and Miami's plans. And so you had Notre Dame playing Clemson instead with no division, uh, just the one versus two format. So now North Carolina and Miami get that chance. They know that one of the two, almost certainly, and you're barring a really big surprise, uh, will play Clemson. And, you know, Sam Howell, hey, he's on the Heisman shortlist. How many times in recent memory can you say that a North Carolina player, you know, is one of the top three, four players in the Heisman Trophy conversation before the season even begins? So, like, you know he's the real deal. You know he has a great, uh, a great feeling. And so, you know, if he can put on his cape and, and carry Carolina, you know, as long as the offensive line gives him enough time to breathe, uh, you know, that didn't happen in the, in the bad stumble in Tallahassee last year against Florida State. If that O-line can avoid one or two clunkers, uh, I, I certainly think that UNC is likely to win the Coastal and get that shot at Clemson. They don't play in the regular season. So I think a lot of people uh, really want to see the Tar Heels and the Tigers go at it in Charlotte in December, and I think that's going to happen. All right. Very good, Matt. Um, Matt, who is your preseason 2021 ACC football coach of the year going into the season? And and who do you think – who is your 2021 ACC football coach on the hot seat? So having said that North Carolina is going to win the Coastal, I'd say Mac Brown. I think, I think you know, if, if North Carolina wins 10 games, gets to the title game, um, you know, because, like, Clemson is Clemson. And so I think, you know, Dabo would have to, you know, Clemson would have to be extremely dominant uh, for Dabo to get the award because it's kind of that, it's, it's a familiar dynamic. Like, Urban Meyer didn't win Big Ten Coach of the Year at Ohio State because, you know, it's Ohio State. So, like, they're, they're expected to go 12-1. and 1. They're expected to go 13-0. and 0. Um, So I think, I think it's Mac Brown's award to lose. Um, you know, obviously we could see a team that's set to be at the bottom of the ACC and they win seven games. Like, let's say Duke wins seven games. I'm not predicting that. I think Duke will have a very bad year, probably three and nine. Uh, somewhere in that range. But if hypothetically Duke did win six or seven games, you know, David Cutcliffe might be coach of the year. But, uh, you know, in terms of what I expect then, I do expect Mac Brown to be coach of the year because I think if North Carolina beats Miami, wins 10 games, wins the Coastal, I think that's enough to get Mac Brown the award over Dabo, even if Clemson wins the conference. And then as for the hot seat, I mean, now, first off, let me preface this by saying I don't think anyone 12 months ago in late August of 2020 thought this was going to be the case. But it's real. It's real. Scott Satterfield of Louisville, he's on the hot seat. And it's not just because last year was such a disaster and Louisville badly underperformed. It's because Satterfield, in what was just a huge surprise, I think to everybody who follows ACC football, why did he have wandering eyes? Why was he looking at other jobs? so early into his Louisville tenure. And, of course, Louisville fans are very much aware that, you know, they, they dealt with all the crap from Bobby Petrino, who is, you know, the ultimate wandering eye head coach uh, in college football. No one had more of a wandering eye than he did, flirting with all sorts of other jobs, no matter what the stage was in his particular tenure 
And, of course, he had two go-rounds at Louisville, too. Um, so Louisville has just gotten into this improbable uh, rut where every coach seems to have some kind of problem in terms of commitment, in terms of leadership, in terms of doing things, you know, above board. Also, of course, in basketball, we've just seen Chris Mack get suspended without pay for six games. So that has to make the people at Louisville really, really angry. And so that is an extra factor, completely divorced from wins and losses themselves. The fact that Satterfield just behaved horribly means that, you know, if, if he has another underachieving season, I think they're going to find a way to push him out. Like, we're going to – we can put up with you, even if you're a jerk, uh, if you win big and you deliver results for us. But if you're going to be a jerk and you lose, forget about it. You're out of here. <laughs> so I think that uh, – I think that uh, Satterfield is the number one hot seat in the ACC. You know, David Cutcliffe at Duke, that's not really a hot seat. Like, he's not under pressure. He has nothing to prove. This is a situation where he probably retires after this season. So I don't really put that in the context of, a, of what we traditionally refer to as a hot seat. Like, he, David Cutcliffe is not sweating about his career. You know, he's had a great career. Uh, a distinguished one, many successes at many places. But Scott Satterfield, yeah, that's a young coaching career, which we thought would uh, attain great height, and it could all be scuttled. It could come crashing down this year if Louisville doesn't uh, make significant improvements. So there you go. Don't be a jerk and lose. (laughs) Um, So let's talk um, about the ACC title game. And you've already, uh, I think, mentioned this, uh, who you think is going to be in there. So we'll kind of change up on, on this question. And, and should Clemson and North Carolina meet? Um, you know, Clemson hadn't had much difficulty in the ACC championship, let's be honest, the last few years. Um, uh, a few years ago, they got pushed by uh, Virginia Tech. North Carolina gave them a good game um, with the uh, 11-1 and Larry Fedora team. But for the most part, they just cruised. So should they meet uh, you know, Clemson and North Carolina. What What are your, you know, preseason thoughts on that matchup should it happen? Yeah, well, you know, in a one-game situation, uh, North Carolina certainly has the firepower on offense uh, to beat Clemson. Like, if North Carolina plays its best game, it can win. Like, we haven't had that in previous uh, ACC championship games. Now, Clemson Notre Dame, you know, that was a matchup of heavyweights. So, like that, that, that game going in was up for grabs. I think Clemson was the favorite because you had Trevor Lawrence playing in the game, which he did not in the regular season matchup in South Bend. But it was fundamentally anybody's game. Like people knew that Notre Dame was going to be in the playoffs even with a loss. So that was anybody's game. But like Clemson versus Virginia. Virginia's best game probably wasn't even going to be good enough to beat Clemson. Clemson versus Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh's best game probably still wasn't going to be good enough to beat Clemson. But I think with North Carolina and the weapons they have, Sam Howell, you know, in a one-shot situation, one game for all the marbles, I think if North Carolina does play its best game, it could be good enough to beat Clemson. But here's the thing. The fact that DJ Uyagalele had that game at Notre Dame last year when Trevor Lawrence came down with COVID, man, that is going to be such a hugely important thing for Clemson this season, especially in that opener this upcoming Saturday against Georgia. The fact that Uyagalele has had a, a really, really big game under his belt, like he knows the jitters, the butterflies, it's not going to be completely new for him. Wow, that is just an enormous benefit for Clemson against Georgia and in this season. So I give North Carolina a puncher's chance, but I do think that Uyagalele is going to be ready for the challenge in that game and throughout this season for the Clemson Tigers. All right, very good, Matt. Um, let's go national picture here. Uh, in the preseason here, give us your four college football playoff teams as of today, and who do you think wins the national title, and will the ACC be in this picture? 
Uh, I think I think the ACC will, and, I, and you know what I just said about Uyagalele uh, is a big reason why I think Clemson gets back to the playoff as ACC champion. You know, I don't think I, I you know it, it's a step down from Trevor Lawrence, but it's only one step down. It's not two or three. Like it's not going to be a Kelly Bryant situation uh, where Clemson gets caught with an especially weak quarterback. I mean, hey, Clemson made the, the playoff even with Kelly Bryant, but you know Bryant. I think, you know, you know, he transferred out of the program. He, he was a little bit of a step below, a few steps below, you know, Deshaun Watson. There was a bigger drop-off at quarterback, and Clemson's defense was able to hold the fort, keep that program together. I don't think you have the same uh, significant extent uh, of a drop-off from uh, Trevor to uh, a, a young version of Uyagalele. Uh, so that, that, that's one part of the puzzle. But the other part, that you have Nolan Turner back, you have James Salky back. You know the, the fact that Clemson uh, got some key defensive players to return. You know it, it, that that's a big thing. You know obviously last year Travis Etienne returning was unexpected, but it really helped Clemson. So this year on the you had on the defensive side of the ball key players returning. It's amazing how Dabo. Uh, I mean he. I mean. You know, we, I don't know if, if you know, he just has a, the, a magic selling point. Uh, you know, he has a, the knack of salesmanship to a degree that other college coaches lack, or if it's just a matter of being blindly lucky in terms of players, you know, being unconvinced that their draft stock is going to be high enough so they think, oh, well, it's a 50-50 deal, but if, if I'm uncertain, I'm going to err on the side of staying at Clemson rather than leaving. So, I mean, Clemson's been really fortunate uh, in 2020 and now in 2021 with key players on the fence for the NFL draft choosing to stay. So with Turner, Salsky, and other defensive players staying, I think that Clemson has the quality on both sides of the ball to get back to the playoffs. Now, the other, the other playoff spots, you know, first off, you know, I'm out here in the West. So, like, I can write off the Pac-12 at the start of every season. Uh, I don't think Notre Dame's going to get back there this year. So I think that leaves us with the very familiar scenario of the SEC, uh, the Big Ten, the ACC, and the Big 12, since Oklahoma's still in the Big 12 for now. Uh, I think that that's going to be the familiar playoff mixture, and it's going to be the familiar team. Like, I, I just don't see a big upset coming. Uh, in any of these power conferences. I think Alabama's going to hold off Georgia in the SEC. I'm not 100% sold on JT Daniels. who You know, he played like a third of a season. He was injured for a good portion of last season. So how he plays in four or five games, that doesn't tell me how he's going to play in 12 games. So give me Alabama over Georgia. In the SEC championship game, Alabama is going to return from the SEC. Uh, Ohio State is still the king in, in, in the Big Ten. So I would say that, you know, now Ohio State, I was talking earlier about Clemson's drop-off at quarterback not being too severe because Uli Agalele had that Notre Dame game last year and should be able to be very solid in pressure situations. At Ohio State, though, you might see a drop-off of like three or four notches, not just one from Justin Fields to um, uh, C.J. Stroud. You know, that, that quarterback situation could unravel, but the, the fact that Chris Olave, you know, their veteran wide receiver, did decide to return to school instead of going to the NFL draft, I think that's really going to stabilize the Buckeyes passing game. That is a huge factor in, in giving me the confidence uh, to pick Ohio State as the Big Ten champion. Probably going to play Wisconsin. You know, Wisconsin's receivers were hurt all last year. That's why that offense in Madison was so bad. So if, the, if Wisconsin's receivers can be healthy this year, I think you're going to see the Wisconsin offense return to a high level. So Ohio State over Wisconsin uh, in the Big Ten uh, title game. So Ohio State comes back. Uh, Oklahoma is the clear choice out of the Big 12, and, and, and I, I joined the ranks of pundits and commentators who say, hey, this is the year for Lincoln Riley to finally win a playoff semifinal at Oklahoma. This is the year for the Big 12 to finally win 
a playoff semifinal, which it hasn't done yet. And, of course, when Oklahoma goes to the SEC, well, goodbye Big 12 chances in the playoffs. So the Big 12 better strike this year, and it's got to be Oklahoma's time to at least win a semifinal and get to the national title game. It's, it's going to depend on Matt and Jeff. It's going to depend on how the playoff is seeded. You know, I think if Oklahoma can draw Ohio State with a younger, less experienced quarterback in the semifinal, I think that's the matchup that favors the Sooners. You want to avoid Alabama and Clemson. You want to have Alabama and Clemson playing in the other semifinal if you're Oklahoma. So, um, you know, in terms of who gets the national title game, I think it's going to depend on seeding. So I can, if Oklahoma can get a number two seed uh, in the playoffs, you know, that, that, then it can get the opponent that it wants in the semifinal, make its way to the national title game. So I'm going to go with Alabama over Oklahoma. I know it's completely lacking in imagination, but, you know, hey, I'm looking at the landscape. I'm trying to find an upset. I'm trying to find a surprise. I'm trying to find a fresh angle. I'm really making the effort, but I just don't see it happening. All right. Matthew, I'm going to turn it over to you as we uh, got a couple more questions here in the podcast. Definitely, definitely. Uh, and I'm sure Jeff will chime in on this next question, too. He may have some follow-ups, Matt, but you know, what is the Pac-12 do you think looking for from the Alliance perspective, right? Because there's been a lot of news. You know, obviously, I've had a lot of news stories that came out. That came out. The Athletic was the first to, the first to, pu- uh, pu- to publish uh, information about this, about this alliance between the Pac-12 and the ACC and the Big Ten. How do you think it benefits the uh, Pac-12 to align with the ACC and the, and the Big Ten? We're just curious on on your take and Jeff, if you have any follow-ups here, uh, you know, please, please, please go ahead. Yeah, this is a fascinating conversation because I think a lot of people inside the college sports industry agree that the PAC 12, big 10 and the ACC, but really, especially the PAC 12, because the PAC 12 has been the worst of the power five in terms of making the college football playoff. Uh, The PAC 12 is like in the greatest position of need here. The Big Ten can be self-sufficient. The Big Ten doesn't have to make this alliance. It's not an absolute need. It's really more urgent for the Pac-12. I'd be interested in your guys' take on what the ACC is really looking for from this. But just speaking from the Pac-12 perspective, the Pac-12, industry analysts agree, is trying to get Fox, which televises Pac-12 football, uh, the Pac-12 w- wants to get Fox into a bidding war with ESPN for the playoffs uh, in 2026, when the current 12-year playoff deal with ESPN expires you know, at the end of the 2025 season. Most industry insiders think that's the real reason for the alliance. But you run into a very obvious problem as far as the Pac-12 is concerned if you, if you, if you assume that that's the big goal of the alliance. If you're delaying the playoff, more specifically, if you're delaying the 12-team playoff until 2026 because you want Fox to battle ESPN in a bidding war, if you're delaying the 12-team playoff until 2026, what does that mean for the Pac-12? It means the Pac-12 is not going to get into the playoff until 2026. You know, in a four-team playoff, the Pac-12 is not getting in, at least not right now. You know, Oklahoma's better. Ohio State's better, Clemson's better, Alabama's better, far better than any of the Pac-12's best teams. Like, I don't think any Pac-12 team is in a good position to go 12-1 and this year. And, and the Pac-12 champion has to be at least 12-1. and The Pac-12 champion will not get into a four-team playoff with an 11-2 and record. Just can't. And that hasn't happened before. It's not going to happen this year. It's not going to happen in the future. So with a four-team playoff, if you if you keep a four-team playoff through 2025 and the end of the end of the current 12-year playoff contract, and you don't get that 12-team field, the Pac-12 is costing itself college football playoff berth. It's costing itself exposure, and of course, most of all, it's costing itself revenue. So from my angle, the Pac-12 needs to find ways 
to, you know, rework the playoff deal so that the SEC doesn't get four or five at-large bids. Like, there needs to be a cap on, S- on conference-specific at-large bids, probably at three. I think that's a number that people can work with. So, like, you can't give unlimited bids so that the SEC can stack the deck with Alabama and Georgia and Oklahoma uh, and LSU and Florida. Now that the, the 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 deal that the working group formulated, or the proposal that the working group formulated in June, you know, it, it, it just was sloppy. And it's instructive to note that George Kleabkoff, the Pac-12 commissioner, he hadn't taken over. He took over on July 1st, and you had Larry Scott making statements about what the Pac-12 wanted from the plan. But Scott's not going to be commissioner when the 12-team plan eventually uh, becomes reality. So that was always off. That was that always struck me as something really weird, really odd, and and that speaks to another thing. You're you both of you, Matt and Jeff, in the ACC country, you're in a similar position in the sense that Jim Phillips is new as ACC commissioner. So you know, ESPN, the SEC, Oklahoma, and Texas, they all realize, hey, there's there's transition. Uh, among the other Power Five conferences in terms of their commissioners, ACC with a new commissioner, Pac-12 with a new commissioner, Kevin Warren in the Big Ten, he hasn't been there all that long. Uh, so there was a real power vacuum, and ESPN, the SEC, Oklahoma, and Texas pounced on that. They took advantage of all of these transitions in the commissioner's chairs of the other conferences. So from that standpoint, I understand why you're seeing the Pac-12, ACC, and Big Ten with these young commissioners, not young in terms of, you know, ages, but being new to the job, uh, that, you know, it really makes sense that they they want to pump the brakes and, and walk this back and say, whoa, we need to, you know, stop this process. We need to get a much better deal out of it. But to, to kind of circle back to the ultimate point, it's not in the Pac-12's best interest to wait until 2026 for a 12-team playoff. The Pac-12 needs a 12-team playoff sooner, not later. Uh, and so I'm wondering what the chess move is for George Kliabkoff to make that happen and yet still make uh, the Big Ten and the ACC happy. That, that, that's one very big point. There is a second key point here. Uh, John Wilner of the San Jose Mercury News, one of the best journalists who covers Pac-12 sports, you can find him on Twitter at Wilner Hotline, one of the best in the biz. If you want to find out the industry inside chatter that's going on in the Pac-12, he's your man, Wilner Hotline. Uh, he wrote a very perceptive column a few days ago uh, in which he said that, you know, it's easy to think about uh, realignment as, you know, expanding. How do we expand? Which teams are we going to add? You know, should the Pac-12 expand into Texas? You know, footprint, media, media deals, eyeballs, television. Uh, it's easy to think about, you know, where are we going to add? Where are we going to add? Add, add, add. Wilner made the point in a recent column that the ultimate point of this alliance, and I don't disagree with him. I, th- I think, I mean, you know, upon reflecting about it, it really makes a lot of sense. The point wasn't to set up more teams coming into the Pac-12 or the ACC. It wasn't about collecting some of these Big 12 refugees. The point was to prevent other conferences from poaching Pac-12 members. When you think about it, it really begins to make sense. Because there's a lot of chatter about, uh, you know, the, the, Pac-10, the Pac-12 and Big Ten are part of a larger uh, association of American universities. They're academics. They're, they're the cultural fits. They're very much in line. Uh, there were whispers. There were stirrings about USC maybe leaving for the Big Ten, maybe even UCLA. Uh, so in many ways, according to Wilner, and I really think he's right on this, uh, the, the alliance is about uniting with the Big Ten so that the Big Ten can't poach USC, UCLA, maybe even Oregon and Washington. So it was a preventative move, not an addition, an, an addition-seeking move for the Pac-12. And I think that has been an under-discussed, point on a national level. The Pac-12 was trying to protect itself as opposed to expanding its territory. I'm not blaming anyone 
or criticizing anyone for thinking that, you know, the Pac-12 might want to expand. Of course, that was a possibility. But we all did overlook the reality that the, the, the Pac-12 can't lose USC. You know, much as the Big 12 cannot lose Oklahoma and Texas, the Pac-12 had to play the kind of defense that Bob Bowlesby failed to play with the Big 12. So that really was the overlooked part of the alliance and why it really happened. Very good answer. Very good answer. Jeff, you got any follow-up there? Yeah, I mean, to what Matt was saying, I think he touched on a lot of the, the points from the ACC side with the television contract. I think from, from Jim Phillips' side, you know, he, he, he I think he looked at it, and, you know, we'll see if this is really the case, but one of the issues the ACC is struggling with is they're in, locked into a contract that goes into 20, to 2036 um, with, with ESPN, so there's not a lot of wiggle room for them to kind of renegotiate that deal, um, and there wasn't much leverage for the ACC, unless Notre Dame joins, of course, which, you know, that, that's always that, that holy grail wish list, um, you know, for Notre Dame, but I don't think you can bank your future on that. So I think Phillips had to try to create some leverage with with ESPN to, you know, to say, hey, kind of up the, the, the ante on what the ACC is. And I think a lot of the points Matt touched on, you know, if, if ESPN wants to uh, get that playoff deal done sooner, not have it go out with Fox, you know, you, you, you've got the Pac-12, you've got the, the Big Ten that are partial Fox properties. The SEC is clearly going to just do whatever ESPN wants. They're hand-in-hand. Hand. But the ACC is an ACC property, too. And now they may end up with, a you know, an influencing vote to the whole thing. Um, you know, of course, they're going to have to look at what's in their best interest. But, you know, if I'm Jim Phillips, I'm saying, hey, you, you want us to kind of – you know, try to influence the, the, the Pac-12 and the Big Ten to, to wrap this up here and, and get that playoff format squared away, you know, make it worth our while, or we'll just, you know, we'll we'll wait till it goes to the Fox, too. So I think he created some leverage where there was none. Um, and then, you know, with the, with the schedules, with the possibilities, I think there's a lot of good uh, secondary benefits from, from being able to, you know, schedule with, with with the Big Ten and the Pac-12, um, when it comes to the governmental issues, I think there are um, some synergies there between the, the two conferences, the other three conferences. Because I think if you left the the SEC to their own, you know, way of doing things, I mean, they're probably going to go for unlimited scholarships and and no limits on NIL, and you know, they're they're basically just going to turn it into a minor league and. Uh, to the NFL, which, you know, some people might argue is already the case, but, you know, there's a lot of influential people out there that still want to maintain some level of, you know, this collegial model. And I do think those three conferences are somewhat, you know, are, are aligned on that topic to kind of bring some, to reel some of this in, you know, especially with, you know, the NCAA, it's, it's going to be a non-factor, I think, in the future. You know, they, this might be a new governmental body that, that gets created from, from these three, so I think Phillips looks at it as a as an, a point to create some leverage. Um, I, I think there's some some benefit between the three, you know, of kind of not letting this go kind of completely unregulated. Um, I think the cap, and this is where I really want to see if there's going to be teeth to this because I think Matt brought up a great point. If there's real teeth to this alliance, they have the playoff vote coming up next next month, and if everything is the same as what um, San, uh, Greg Sankey and Bob Bowsby and um, uh, Jack Swarbuck, and then I, I seem to escape me the group of five commissioner that was also involved. I mean, if they keep everything the same as what those four decided, I'm going to be very skeptical of the alliance going forward. But if they have some teeth, they'll kind of pump the brakes on some of those um, on the proposal and change uh, some of that. Maybe they do add a cap. Um, maybe they do have auto bids for conference champions, something like that. But uh, I really want to see in a month if they if they have some amendments to to the current proposal, and that that'll let me know that there's some real teeth to this. 
I, Jeff, I think you speak for everybody. Will it have teeth? And, and, it's, and it's certainly more than reasonable to be skeptical about a gentleman's agreement and a non-binding contract. Like we know how frail and wafer thin those kinds of things tend to be in college sports. So we'll, we've got to check back in a month, see what, come, what comes of this. But I, I think their heart's in the right place. I do. Well, you know, that, that gets you uh, like a, a free order of fries and not much else. <laughs> that is true. That is absolutely true. Mountain Dew Zero. That's what I'm looking for. Uh, okay. <laughs> Very... <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay. So, Matt, it's open microphone time. The floor is yours. What do you got for us? Well, I, you, know, uh, you know, we haven't knocked out the pandemic, but I think we can all just say, as we sit down and listen, as we talk football, man, how great was it to see largely full stadiums like in Illinois and Champaign uh, and, and, you know, and elsewhere across the country and not at UCLA, all right? I mean, LSU is going to own two-thirds of that building this upcoming weekend. But you did see a few really packed college football stadiums, and, and it feels like college football really is back you know you need the you need the fans you need the cheerleaders you need the band it's part of what makes college football and college sports magical you like that crackling intensity you like that college passion and we get it back this year and i know a lot of people found it hard to get into not just college sports but sports more broadly last year you know you're also in the middle of an election uh, we didn't know what the winner was going to feel like, and, you know, it was really hard. But, like, we were – I mean, we're not in a comfortable, great place now, but it was so much more uncertain 12 months ago. And, you know, so fans being able to congregate at games, giving us a much more normal, familiar college football season, I'm going to give thanks for that. I'm going to express gratitude for that. Uh, I think we all appreciate a little bit more, a little bit more deeply – what it means to have a full and true and real college football experience back in our lives. I know, Matt, you're really looking forward to the Virginia Tech-North Carolina game this Friday, and the Lane Stadium is going to be alive again. That's going to, I mean, you know, I mean, we'll see how well Virginia Tech plays, but at least at opening kickoff, I know you're going to feel really good about seeing Hokie fans back in a stadium. That's going to be great. Jeff, you know, Clemson, Georgia in Charlotte. I know you're going to be really excited about that game. So, you know, not everything is normal in America, but we do have college football back in a way which didn't entirely exist in 2020. So I'm grateful for that. Very good, sir. Very good, sir. Jeff, you're up, man. All right. I mean, we could, we could talk about this for another another half hour, but I'm just going to hit a couple highlights for for week one, all right, uh, for our listeners out there. U, U, USF at NC State Thursday night, first uh, game of the season for an ACC team. Uh, that's 7:30 on Thursday night. Uh, Friday, you know, there's another uh, game to keep an eye on that Matt just mentioned: North Carolina at Virginia Tech. That's 6 p.m. On, on ESPN, that's one of the biggest games of the of the weekend, and I mean we could we could talk about that game for an, another 15 minutes, but that's a huge one. Miami, Alabama, 3:30 ABC. Uh, Clemson, Georgia, 7:30 ABC. Sunday, we can't forget about this game. Notre Dame at Florida State, 7:30 ABC. You know what's Mike Norvell had with the Knolls, and then Monday, another primetime game for an ACC team, Louisville. Um, and, and our hot seat coach Scott Satterfield, he can he can get those uh, Louisville fans back on his uh, on his bandwagon really quick if they can knock off Ole Miss in a in a big game. So I mean, just a huge week one um, for ACC schools, and I mean th- this is the kind of week one that can set the tone for the entire rest of the season. There's those teams that's not easing into the schedule. I mean, there's some huge huge games. So I can't wait, can't wait for the season to start. Very good, Jeff. Very good, Jeff. Uh, I just want to – I'm going to take a couple quick quick, quick notes here. Uh, I saw that Virginia Tech 
number 15 men's uh, soccer team in the country defeated number one Marshall today, three to two, in 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 this in the second game that Virginia Tech played this season. That was a monster win for Virginia Tech, and Virginia Tech's been to four Sweet Sixteens in a row for its men's soccer team. And that, and if there's, you know, if the rest of the season can go like that, you might see a good special season for the Virginia Tech men's soccer team. It was fun for me to see that. Um, the other thing I thought about this, I just want to get your guys' quick opinion on this because, you know, our, it seems that our neighbors here, and I, I call them our neighbors probably a little sarcastically right here in, in, in Virginia, right, in uh, Liberty University, um, they just had an interesting they, – they've had a really interesting pandemic there. Um, the uh, – They've apparently have been through. There's a situation, and you can probably get probably guess where I, where I'm coming to with this. And NBC News reported on this today. But there's a temporary uh, campus-wide quarantine amid a, uh, a a spike in COVID-19 cases at the campus, and the school doesn't require vaccinations. They've lifted building capacity restrictions and requirements for distancing and, and, and masking. And now they've kind of have gone back for, you know, they've gone back, right? This is what, this is why they have that, that quarantine, right? With a spike in COVID-19 19 cases. Of course, I had a friend come back to me and say that it's, it's almost as if no mitigation strategies would end up terribly. I, I mean, I'm chuckling a little bit here when I say this, you know, who knew? You know, and he was being a little sarcastic with me. But about, I would say about three, four weeks, I mean, Syracuse is going to be playing them. Because I looked, I instantly looked at their schedule after I saw this. Because the last couple of years, Liberty University has been pretty ACC heavy. I mean, they played Wake, they played Virginia Tech, they played Syracuse, they played NC State. At least once over the last couple of years. And I'm just curious on your thoughts. I'll ask you here, here Matt. I mean, do you think there's a possibility that, I mean, because from what I read here, it appears to me that they, they would not be meeting ACC, COVID, ACC COVID-19 protocols by any stretch of the imagination. I'm wondering if there's an opportunity to actually get out of that contract with playing them, because it seems to me that there's a possibility there with, with, with uh, clauses that you can certainly certainly pull if you think somebody hasn't been holding up their end of the bargain. I, I'm just curious on your thoughts there, Matt. I'm going to use that for another question. Yeah, well, you know, I, I think I think that's in play. I'm not going to be too specific in terms of predicting exactly what's going to happen. I mean, I, I would say that that avenue could very realistically open up. I think that leads to kind of a broader point about college football this year. You know, we're seeing the forfeit policies uh, being put into place by conferences. You know, we're not going to reschedule these games. It's going to be a forfeit. So out here in the West, you know, where I am, I'm in Phoenix. I cover the Pac-12. Very, let me put it to you guys. I'm going to just make it very clear. And also to your, your listening audience here at All Sports Discussion. If Washington State has to forfeit a game, because of COVID-19, Nick Rolovich, the head coach, will be fired. Boom. That, that is, I, I will guarantee you, that will happen. Because, you know, he didn't uh, get vaccinated. And, you know, Jay, Governor Jay Inslee in Washington State reason, uh, just, you know, said, you know, hey, you, you need to get vaccinated. So Rolovich has been less um, combative and defiant in public, but he still really hasn't said, you know, hey, I'm going to go along with the team. I'm going to do exactly what what everybody's requiring. And he's still kind of been, you know, he's been he's been a kind of evasive. I'd say he's just been less um, openly defiant. But you know, given how he's you know resisted the upper reaches of his university uh, on this point, if Washington State has to forfeit a game, that's going to give Washington State the ability to fire him with cause. You know, and Washington State can therefore save several million dollars uh, and direct it toward the hiring uh, of a new head coach. So that that's an item in the Pac-12 connected to COVID protocols and the, the business of college sports, the operational side of college sports. And it'll be interesting to see if there are any other uh, similar situations like that 
cropping up across the country during the season. Uh, Brian Harson at Auburn. I do not think he's gotten vaccinated. You know, he came down with COVID. If there is a COVID situation at Auburn, that could be very messy uh, sooner than, than anyone really anticipated. So that is another coaching story to watch relative not to wins and losses. This is not about wins and losses. This is about COVID-19 and what college sports administrators are prepared to do. Now, I'm not, I'm not making a verdict. I want to be very clear on this. I'm not making a verdict about what people should or shouldn't do. I'm just laying out the politics at these universities in terms of the, the situation regarding administrators and their head college football coaches. That's all. This is about the political landscape. We'll see how this story in various localities evolves in the, during the 2021 season. Very good. Very good take, Matt. We really appreciate that. Okay. Two quick things here. I'm sure for, I'm sure for all of us, I mean, we're thinking about the people in Louisiana here, right? Because there obviously is a big, big storm that hit the ground there today. People were evacuated. People were evacuating. They already have a situation where a lot of their hospitals are at, at or near max capacity. And then you're probably going to have people and that's due to the pandemic. Due to the pandemic. Due to the pandemic. There, I mean, that's where a lot of their their hospitals are filled with people, full with people. Plus, there's going to be a situation where people will need medical care after this storm. So, I'm we're pray, certainly praying for everybody down there. I think there. My my own sense is that they're probably going to call in the National Guard to to build some temporary, at least help them build some temporary hospitals and maybe potentially give them some potential health care worker surge capacity, things like that. And they did that back in my home state at, at, in the, towards the middle of the pandemic here in the last year. And I think the same thing could happen in Louisiana. So we're certainly praying for everybody down there. The other thing, and I, and I think it's important, Matt brought this up, and brought this up here uh, in the podcast that he was fortunate enough to, uh, to, and to be able to write about college sports, but also be around his mom. And I, be around his mom who will turn 81 this year and i you know i i'm probably in i'm i'm not in the same boat right because i live miles and miles and miles away from my parents my parents my parents still live in Fargo, north dakota but i i just i issued a thread here on twitter i kind of printed pinned it to my profile earlier today just to make sure that if your parents are still alive make sure you see them as often as you can be fortunate that, that you still have them in our life i mean a, a lot of people think that they, their parents will live forever and to a degree that, you know, they're always going to be in my mind and heart. But every time I visit Fargo, I'm sad to leave. My mom turns 81 in September. My dad will be 80 in January. And every time I see them it's God, or talk to them, it's, I, I count it up as a win to God's grace that I'm still, still tending, spending some time and precious days and minutes with them, you know, whether it's in person or over the telephone. You should don't ever take your parents for granted and feel lucky that you have them in your life. You're important to them. They're important to you. And the world's better with your parents in it. The world's better with you in it, too. So, and I, and I, I probably had my moment, and I'm probably laying a little more out than I usually do, but I probably had my emotional moment today in the, in the, in the pandemic, right? I mean, I probably grew up, I grew up with parents who are educators and have that innate, innate, innate trait, I think, about caring about others. I have I come from a family of educators, and I, I think that's a good thing. So we need to have more people care about other people in this world. And I know I'm fortunate that in that regard, and I probably feel those emotions a little more when I, you know, living farther away from everybody. So that is my, <laughs> my take. Anyway, so Matt, hey, thank you so much for joining us on the All Sports Discussion ACC podcast tonight. We enjoyed having you come on the show and talking about ACC and national college football with us. And, it's always a great time when you have when you come on the podcast with us. And if you have anything additional that you would like to say, the floor is yours. Well, I just want to say first off, congratulations, guys, on finding a sponsor for All Sports DACC All Sports Discussion. That's a that's a great achievement. It's a sign to the growth of the of the site and the podcast, and also to the the caliber of work that you do the respect that all sports discussion has earned uh, over the years. So that's one thing. Second, Matt, I'm praying for you and your family and your parents, um, holding you close in my thoughts, uh, you know, and, and I, I really appreciate your, 
your heartfelt sentiments there. And uh, you know, Jeff, keep doing a great job with everything, and uh, best of luck to your Clemson Tigers. I think it's going to be another good year for them. And, of course, not to be forgotten or minimized, uh, best of luck to your Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets as they try to improve under Jeff Collins. But uh, always a pleasure, guys. Going to keep riding through your site. Going to have some good stuff this week. Uh, certainly uh, Georgia Clemson. I'll be writing about that game. And uh, just look forward to continuing to work with you guys throughout football and basketball season. It's, it's a pleasure, an honor, and a privilege. We Same really on this side as well. Yeah, we, we really appreciate your really, really appreciate your efforts, Matt. And, well, guys. I mean, again, thanks so much for coming on, Jeff. Excuse me, Matt. <laughs> thanks so much for coming on the show. Oh, De- hey, no, and- Jeff had to come on. He could have stayed home. 